know, it's nice to be loved. <laughs> and, um, and today it's all about love because we're doing songs, uh, song of solemn, songs of song of songs today. So, um, which we know is a love poem. So, um, so it's really great. I'm just going to be speaking to you about um, about song of songs, about giving you a bit of an overview. And where I've got the, um, the my resource for this has been the Bible Project. Um, has any of you managed to spend any time looking at the Bible Project on YouTube? And I know we've had some of the, you know, we've had, we've shown some of the videos here, haven't we? And you know, it's really amazing. I, I really enjoy um, the Bible Project resource because it's really accessible. You feel like, actually, it makes it really easy to understand and all the pictures and the images helps you to put things into place. And so quite often when, I'm, um, um, when I start reading a book in the Bible, I'll watch one of those YouTube videos or afterwards I might have a look at it. And so it's just worth doing that. Um, so when I was preparing this, I, I looked at that as well as some other resources. So, um, so you'll probably, if you do watch, so this is my disclaimer really. So if you do watch it, you'll hear some of the some um, firm familiarities with what I'm bringing to you today. So, you know, so the book, A Song of Song, is a really well-known book, but it's not really that well understood. It's got about eight chapters of love poetry, um, and it doesn't have any literature design, although it does have an introduction and a conclusion. And the reason why it doesn't really have any literal design is because it's simply a collection of poems. The poems are not meant to be taken apart, dissected, and, and all of that. It's simply just meant to be enjoyed and read. Um, when I started preparing this preach, um, I kept dreaming about poems. Now, I don't know if you were um, at school, when you were at school, you had to um, remember poems and then you had to recite it in front of the class. Well, I started having dreams. I had to learn poems and then I'd be standing in front of the class trying to recite it. And, you know, so in fact, I think it was more of a nightmare, actually, because I was like stood there thinking, I can't remember this poem, you know. Um, but some people actually really love poems, like they love writing them, they love reading them and sharing them. And so I can't imagine, um, you know, um, many people um, going this week without actually hearing the Manchester poem. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard the Manchester poem this week. It's been a very, you know, it's a very powerful poem that, you know, that um, read out at the vigil on Tuesday, and you know, and it's um, and it's something that talks about actually we're in this together. It's something really powerful. Poems are there to help us to when they're put together, all the right words and structure and stuff like that. You know, when they've got meaning, they actually really touch our hearts. They 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 do something to us. They touch our emotions and and they move us. And you know and you know, in the Manchester poem, you know, in, in the light of what's happened this week, 
does make us think about the tragedy of, of the things that have gone on. But within that poem, we have hope of actually, do you know what happens when people come together and stand in unity with one another, that actually we can achieve so much together. And so this poem helps us to see, actually, you know, in the midst of hopelessness, that there is still hope. And I love how the poem ends with, choose love. You know, and I don't know what kind of relationship um, Tony Walsh, who was the writer of that poem, it ha- is. I don't know what kind of relationship he, he has with God, if he's got any faith at all. But it just goes to show how powerful love is. That actually in the midst of crisis, in the midst of hate, in the midst of tragedy, that actually love is really, really powerful. And so quite often we see, so a lot of poems, the topic of love is, is, is really common with poems and poetry. Um... The book, Song of Songs, is basically a book of poems. And the first line of the book, Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that it is Song of Songs, which is a Hebrew phrase like holy of holies or lord of lords or king of kings. And so we know, don't we, when someone says Jesus is the king of kings, actually what they're saying is there's no other king like Jesus. That is no other king that outranks Jesus, that he is the king above all other kings. And when we say, oh, he is the lord of lords, we're saying there's nobody else that's got the authority that our Jesus has, that he is the lord of lords. So Song of Songs signifies that This book of poems is the song of all songs. You know, in all the poems in all the world, that this would be the number one in the charts. And it has been since the time that it it was written. So imagine, imagine the royalties you would get if you had written that poem, that it was the song of songs, number one for all time. Now, it also states in the first line of the first chapter that this is Solomon's Song of Songs. So this book is introduced as Solomon's Song of Songs, um, which could mean that he was the one who wrote it. But as you read the poems, you discover that actually the main voice in the poem is that of a woman called the Beloved. And even though there is a male voice, it doesn't seem to be Solomon. Solomon is mentioned a couple of times in the poems, but he is never the speaker. And it would actually seem quite odd that, um, that he would be the author, seeing as he had about 700 wives at the time. And so when we look at Songs of Songs, we can see that actually it's about couples' love for one another, that actually they only have eyes for one another. And I can't imagine how Solomon would cope with only having eyes for one lover, with having 700 wives. I'm sure, I'm sure he had lots of times for all his wives. But, um, but the fact it mentioned that these songs of Solomon could be that, um, that Solomon was actually in his day the literary genius of poetry and wisdom and all of that. And he was known for his, his hunger for learning about life and, and writing about it. And people would go to him to, to find out what he'd, he'd learned and discovered. 
And so um, he was, um, so he's probably mentioned in the poem really because he was like the father of, of literally, of literary, literacy, wisdom, and all of that. So which takes me to talk a bit about the theme of the book, which is of a woman who takes delight in her man, who is a shepherd. She's not married to him yet, but it becomes very clear that they're engaged and that they can't wait to be together. There doesn't seem to be much storyline, but there's lots of repetition and key ideas that seems to develop as you read through it. Remember, this is a book that was meant to be just read and to enjoy. You know, and to be able to, you know, with all the, I don't know if you ever were into poetry, but there's always lots of imagery and, and things like that. And that's what this poem, these poems are like. They've got lots of poetic imagery in it which might appeal to all of you that love poems and, and um, you know, who might actually like writing poems, who likes reading poems. In fact, there might even be people here that could actually tell me a thing or two what, what the Song of Songs was um, all about. But one of the basic themes um, uniting the poems is this intense desire that this couple have for each other. You know, if you... Um, were friends at a party and you were friends with this couple, you'd be thinking right now, will you just get married and just get a room for goodness sakes? You know, because their love is so intense with each other, which is expressed through contact and seeking and finding each other. And it seems to be a little bit like those really frustrating movies where boy meets girl, they fall in love, profess undying love for one another, but then they get separated, and, but then they get back together and you think, oh great, now they can live out their love for one another, just sharing their love for one another, only to find that something disastrous happens and they get separated again. And In fact, you're watching this movie and from about two scenes ago, you actually think, oh, I know what's going to happen now and it's this it's building up and there's this intensity and as it comes about and this mistake or something disastrous happens and you're just screaming out at the screen at the tv or the film or what actually if you're in the cinema you might do it internally not to disturb the movie but you'd be screaming out no don't and then they get separated again and so you're going through all the pain of watching them trying to find each other once again and whether they actually manage to find each other or not I don't know but so this poem is quite a lot like that. So after the opening of the poem, they are separated, but they're on the hunt for each other again. The woman will call out, she'll either wake up from a dream and discover that um, she wants her lover, and so off she goes to try and find him again. And then they'll embrace one another, and then when things start getting a little bit racy, that's when the scene ends. And then it starts all over again where they actually discover they're not together so they want to find each other so they start looking and calling out for one another and they find each other and so it goes on like that. Another repeated theme in the poems is the, um, the couple's joy of their physical attraction for one another. They describe each other with these elaborate metaphors like, I liken you, my darling, to a mare. 
Hmm, I wonder how many women here like being likened to a mare, to a horse. You know, if your, your boyfriend or fiancé or husband said, my, you know, she's like a mare, I'm sure you felt really, really complimented. Or if, you know, if he says to you something like, your eyes are doves. My eyes are like these white birds, flappy things. What's that about? Now then the compliments go on, like, um, you know, all the compliments, all as women really love to hear is that your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> well, thank you, I feel really, really special right now. So, but thankfully, these Hebrew metaphors are not meant to be visual. They're supposed to be reflecting on some meaning of, 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 of something in, you know, in, you know, in, in that time. And we can relate them to the man and to the woman. So when we look at the word mare, could it possibly mean victorious? or um, layers of mystery yet being uncharted. Mm, I like that, a bit of mystery, you know. That's quite a compliment, mysterious. Or your eyes are like dove. Could it be saying that when I look into your eyes, I see peace and love? Um, again, it's quite romantic. I wasn't quite sure what your hair, like a flock of goats, could possibly mean, apart from the fact that she might have a lot of hair. But, um, you know, maybe it's worth looking up the, some of these Hebrew metaphors of what they actually do mean. In the Message Bible, it puts it like this. Your hair flows and shimmers like a flock of goats in the distance. So I think I might take that, you know, shimmering hair. You know, that's fine. You can see I've got shimmering hair. That's good. So it all comes together as... Um, um, as a, a conclusion to the end and you know and we will see throughout the book you know this tension building up so their desire their desire and their joy of coming together and you know and it's repeated all the way through the book and heightening and focusing on the mystery and power of sexual love yes I said it sexual love so don't tell anyone I said that in church so so it all comes together in this conclusion in um, Song of Songs in chapter 8. So I'm going to read a bit of Songs of Song, chapter 8. And it's the woman named Beloved, and she says this from verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. So these verses highlight the power and intensity of love, how it's both beautiful and dangerous. Like fire, it can destroy, it can destroy people if it's abused or not treated properly. But it's also, it can be life-giving if it's protected, it can bring us heat, it can bring us warmth. And we know about fire, how it can be refining, it cleanses us and, and heals us and restores us. 
And the Bible tells us about the power of love. And when we choose the right kind of love, which is choosing Jesus, the one who gave his life for us, we will know unspeakable joy. We will know a love that brings restoration to our lives, a love that will transform us, protect us, cleanse us, heals us, restores us, takes away our shame and guilt. But if we choose to love the things of this world, we won't get any protection from this world. In fact, however hard we try, we won't find any fulfillment in this world apart from Christ. We can find ourselves in a place where life has no meaning. What is this life all about? Where is my hope come from? You know, we can so easily fall into the trap of falling in love with the things of this world and what it can offer us because it seems so attractive at the time. It seems like it's the one. You know, I don't know about you, but have you, you know, whenever you um, start going out with somebody, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or anything like that, you know, you might get people saying to you, is this the one? Or, you know, maybe, you know, when you've been married for a while, people come come up to you and say, how did you know that this was the one? You know, I think it's one of our biggest fears, isn't it, that we will that we will all one day will one day face that we've picked the wrong one and now we're stuck with them for the rest of our life. Well, the thing is, the Bible tells us how to choose the right one when it comes to choosing either the world or Jesus. It talks about our flesh and our spirit. Do we choose flesh or do we choose following and keeping in step with the spirit? And there is this internal battle that's going on, but the Bible tells us choose Jesus, choose life, choose Jesus because we were actually created to be loved by Jesus. We were actually created for love, for him, to bring him pleasure. God is a jealous God when it comes to his children. He loves us passionately. His love is relenting, unyielding, never gives up. His love will never Never, never be quenched. He will keep on loving us. And so this poem shows us how powerful and dangerous love can be. So as I said before, there's this endless searching and finding of one another throughout Songs of Songs. Ultimately, love expresses this insatiable human longing to be known and to be desired. Every single one of us want to feel like we are really, really known and still de- desired. You know, so we, um, you know, because of this um, internal desire that we, we have, we can sometimes put on a bit, of a bit of a show, a bit of a front, because we want to be accepted, we want people to like us, we want people to, to love us. But there is nothing like being able to be yourself, completely be yourself, and know that you are still loved. Even with all the warts, the morning breath, the hair stuck to one side because you've not had a shower yet, and all the bad habits of squishing the toothpaste from the middle, and, and all that, even, even, even the dirty washing on the floor and things like that. And yet, 
you are still desired, you are still loved, that you are still want, someone is still wanting to be with you. You know, David describes this kind of intimate relationship with Heavenly Father in Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, verse 1 to 4, it says this You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. So if human beings long to be known and desired, there is no one that does that better than our heavenly Father. He knows what we are about to do before we even do it. All those stupid mistakes, all those stupid things that we're about to say or to do, he already knows about them. No, he already even knows about the times we're going to hurt him or reject him or, or all those things. Nothing is a surprise to him. And yet, he still passionately loves us. He still passionately wants to pursue a relationship with each and every one of us. That is true love. Love is one of the biggest mysteries in life. It goes beyond our understanding. You know, we are to search him out, go looking for him, and our searching of him um, reveals our desire for him, our longing to be with him. As we search for him, like in a, a game of hide and seek, there is this tension that builds up as you feel like you're getting closer and closer, not knowing what you might actually discover. There's something that builds up inside of us as we're searching him, the one who loves us, the one who's waiting for us to discover him. No, 1 John 4, verse um, 7 to 21. If you want to turn to 1 John, 1 John 4, that's great. I'm going to read a few verses there. But 1 John 4 says this in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So we are created for love and we know love when we know God. Without knowing God, we can't possibly really truly know what love is. We may get some joy from the love that we experience outside a, a relationship with God or we may, may even feel that actually there is more to life than this, that, that we're not experiencing the fullness of what love is. And, and, you know, because, and then we feel that actually there's this gap in our lives. You know, we feel this when we're, we're not close to God, that we feel that there is something more to life than this. There must be something more to life than this. 
But when we know God, when we know him, we experience his love and we discover that actually his love is indescribable. It fulfills us. It makes us whole. And we were created out of love. It's not surprising, is it, when we talk about making babies, uh, we talk about making love, you know, the potential that another human being is being created in an act of making love. And that's why sex is so precious, so important to be kept pure and holy in a loving, married relationship. Sex was never meant to be a casual thing, but something beautiful that expresses the oneness, the unity, and the commitment between two people coming together with the potential of creating another human being. And some of us may here may be even thinking that they were a mistake that they weren't created out of love, that their parents didn't even love each other when, you know, when, they, were, when they were born or, or when they were conceived. Or, you know, and maybe you have all these kind of thoughts that go in through your mind. Well, let me tell you that Jesus knew you before the foundations of the earth. And you, know, and you were created out of God's love for you. He created you to be known by him and to be known of you to know him. Love is God's amazing, wonderful, powerful, awesome gift to us. Now, so the book ends with two lovers looking for each other again. And this time she begs him to run away with her. And that's how the book ends. Just totally ends without a happily ever after or well, this happened or that happens. And I guess this is a lot like what love is like, really. Love never really has a conclusion. There's always more to discover. There's always more to pursue. You know, true love has no end, and so does this book. And through history, there has been questions of what on earth is a love poem doing in the Bible? And there are three main interpretations. And the first interpretation is that f that's come from the Jewish tradition where each character is a symbol where the woman is Israel and the man is God. And then this covenant relationship has come from the time when they went to the Mount Sinai and they, they got the Ten Commandments. And that was, you know, this covenant relationship um, came out of that where they learned about how they should live with one another in unity with one another. The second interpretation, which is probably the one that you're more familiar with, as this is traditionally what Christians have interpreted the book to be. It's like the Jewish interpretation, but instead of it being the love of God with Israel, it's now the love of Jesus Christ and the church, the bride of Christ. Jesus being a shepherd and the church being the beloved. So this interpretation was inspired by what Paul said about the church and Christ and, and about being and the church being the bride of Christ. And an example of this I'm going to read to you in Ephesians 5. It says this, Husband, from verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy 
cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but their feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So here Paul is using the marriage relationship to describe Christ's love for the church. And he's using his love for the church to be an example to us of how we should love our husbands and wives. And the third interpretation has come from a recent discovery that, um, that's been, you know, recent discoveries of over the last 100 years, there's been archaeological finds from among the ancient Egyptians and the Babylonians where all kinds of ancient poetry of similar language and imagery to the Song of Songs has been found. And this shows that love poetry was a meaningful part of Israel's cultural environment, which has led to most scholars to view that the Song of Songs is actually what it presents itself to be, to be a love poem. Showing how wonderful love is and its amazing, powerful, precious gift to us that we should never, ever take love for granted. Maybe if this was the kind of poetry that was popular in those days. Maybe this was the number one of all poetry. Now, I've no idea what the other poems were like that, that they were recently discovered. Um, but it got me thinking about how it makes sense that if actually there is a lot of poems like this going around, that actually this would be presented as the song that beats all songs. And I believe this poem is more than just an ancient poem. It's a love poem that was considered powerful enough to describe love in such a way that it should be included in the Bible and so would be remembered for all time. Because it's in the Bible, um, it's it's to become to us wisdom of how we should see love, how we should experience love, whether that is between us, our husband and our wife, or between us and God. Let it teach us what it means to passionately pursue the one in our lives. Let it be, um, help us to, to, to know what it is to pursue not only our husband and our wife and, and cherishing those times together, but what it means to actually pursue Jesus Christ as well. There's a key feature that sticks out when we read Song of Songs as part of the Old Testament, and that is something of the garden imagery. There is this There were powerful echoes of the Garden of Eden all the way through um, Song of Songs. And and it takes us back to the idyllic scene that we can read about in the beginning of Genesis. And Genesis gives us this imagery of the man and the woman, naked and vulnerable, but completely unified and safe with one another. 
And this resonates in the background of Song of Songs. It's as if we are witnessing the love of a couple whose relationship is untainted by selfishness and sin. So ultimately, the Song of Songs gives us hope that even though our own relationships are so often distorted by selfishness, love is a gift that goes beyond our understanding. It goes beyond what we could ever imagine that we actually don't really deserve this. We can't possibly live up to the standards of this selfless love without sin. And so it's understandable that the Christian's tradition took hold of the book to help us to see that love is meant to point us to something greater. The gift of God's love will one day permeate and transform his beloved world. It was in the garden that sin came into the world and so ruined this perfect unity, this perfect imagery of sinless, perfect, secure love. This sin then came, you know, that the sin then not only ruined the perfect safe union between the first man and woman in the garden, but also separated mankind from knowing perfect union with their heavenly father. But Jesus broke, broke the hold of that sin And the sin that separated us from knowing that perfect union with our Father, Jesus broke that. And it was while in the Garden of Gethsemane that he made the agonizing decision that he was going to take on the wrath of God and sin and take it upon himself. Our separation of a perfect union with God started in the Garden. Our coming back to God began in a garden when Jesus wept because he knew what lied ahead of him he wept because he knew that the that the only way that mankind can ever have a perfect union with the father is if he took our place and died for that sin Jesus went through the agonizing time of being separated from the father for that moment while he took on our shame and guilt. Matthew 27, verse 46, it says this, and Jesus was on the cross, and it says this, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, on the cross, God's wrath was on Jesus and their perfect union was no more because the Father couldn't look at the sin that was now on Jesus while he laid there on the cross. And Jesus took our sin, our shame and our guilt to the grave. Jesus' love is perfect and without sin. He sacrificially laid down his life so that we can know a perfect union with a loving Father and to know his transforming, powerful love in our lives. 
Jesus' love for us is intense and there's nothing that we can do for his love. We can't buy love. We don't deserve his love. There's nothing we can do to deserve his love. But he freely gives it to us. It's his gift to us. He loves us passionately. And he didn't wait for us to start being obedient to him and, and asking him to forgive us. He just loved us right from the start, even before all of that. And so it's up to us now to decide, do we want to respond to that love, to live in obedience to him? Do we want to be those like the characters in the story where we passionately pursue him, that we desire him, that we long for him? And this is a decision that each one of us has to get to a point to say, do you know what? Jesus died so that we can have this perfect union with the Father, to know this perfect love. Do you mind just standing for a minute? Maybe right now, um, have a think about, I want to think about two things. Firstly, think about your relationship with, if you're married, with your husband, your wife. Think about what love is actually meant to be between you, what it's actually meant to represent, how powerful and wonderful it can be. And is there something you can do to make it better, make it amazing, make the other person feel like they're being pursued, make the other person feel like they're really loved by you no matter what? Also, I want you to think about your relationship with your Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. How much do you actually pursue that relationship? How much do you feel passionate about your relationship with God and His love for you? What can you do that's different to show Him how much you love Him? Father, I just want to just thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. I thank you for this story in the Bible that speaks of love and what love looks like and feels like. And Lord, if we're not feeling that or experiencing that, then we're falling short of actually the amazingness of love, true love. And so, Lord God, we just pray that you will help us, that you will give us wisdom, help us to learn from this book. Help us to see what it is that you want us to pursue. Help us, Lord God, to pursue you, Lord God. Help us to build good relationships with our husband and our wives, Lord. Lord God, we thank you, God, that you long to see us happy and fulfilled in this world, Lord God, and we can be in you, Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you. Amen. Amen.